You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Depression Session. We have with us in the studio today, Eli, who's an artist, musician, and educator of youth programming at Mocha Tucson. Trigger warning, today's show does mention suicide, so if that's an issue for you, this might not be the right episode to listen to. We'll be right back with Eli in just a moment, but first I'd like to talk about stress and depression. Stress is ubiquitous in American culture these days. Most jobs have some element of stress in them. Most people experience stress at home, stress at work, stress in their lives, stress getting to work. There are so many different things that we, we feel in our, our, on our way to work and, and, and surrounding work. And I looked up the most stressful jobs, and number one on the list was nurse. Number two was food service, which neither of which surprises me at all. But I was actually a little disheartened and surprised to see that artists, entertainers, and writers are number six, and teachers are number seven. And both Eli and I are artists and teachers. So it's kind of ironic that um, this show is going to be focusing on stress, and those are two professions that are near and dear to my heart. Teachers, the demands on teachers seem to be constantly growing. Many work after school and then take work home. And in many areas, they learn to do a lot with very little. And they said, this was from health.com. They said, the also, artists, entertainers, and writers, these jobs can bring irregular paychecks, uncertain hours, and isolation. Certain people may also have higher rates of mood disorders. About 9% reported an episode of major depression in the previous year. That being said... I find that I feel like I'm someone who manages stress relatively well. I like to be busy. I like to be working on things. I like to take on more things than I can actually handle. And it's not that I say yes to things that I don't want to do. It's that when it comes to teaching and art and all things having to do with that, I want to do more than I'm actually probably healthily capable of doing. And so this past week, we put together an art show of student artwork. And I had a lot of help from my coworkers, but I also did a lot of the work myself, in addition to all the other things I do. So it was a long week with many hours of just the details of putting something together it, it shouldn't matter that I'm working on something extra, right? I, I have time in my life. I keep telling my boyfriend, I don't have time. I can't do that. I don't have time. And he always says to me, sure you can. And he doesn't mean it in like, you can do anything. He means if you want to make, you do have time for things in your life. Having the attitude that you don't have time in and of itself is unhealthy. Thinking I can't do that. I... I don't have time for that. There's no space in my life for that. That if there's something that you want to do, of course you can do it. 
And I often feel not that I don't have time for things. Sometimes literally I don't. There's eight hours in the day at work and then eight hours at home sometimes of other work. And um, I'm exhausted at the end of, of all of that. But it's usually that I, I do have time for things. I don't have the mental energy. And sometimes I just don't have the resiliency to deal with just one more thing. And this year has been crazy for me. I got offered a position at my job that was a full-time position. And I'm extremely honored to have the job. But there's a lot more responsibilities to it, which I knew going into it. And being a full-time teacher means that you have an office, which is excellent because I really like going to the office, working at the office. And when I leave, I go home. That means sometimes I stay in the office until eight o'clock grading and working on things related to school. But at least when I leave, I know I'm just going to go home. I'm not going to take all these projects with me and then grade them at home. For the past several years, I've been doing a lot of work where my office is in my bedroom and things pile up and I, I work on them and I get done what I can get done. But it feels like the place that you sleep is the worst place to do work in. That it's not healthy to not have an end point. So that being said, taking on a full-time position, that's a bonus. I have a place to go to to do my work in that's separate. And I have co-workers and they, they go home at night. And I think maybe I should go home and stop working too. And there's camaraderie, which is really nice. On the negative side, there's a lot of meetings and a lot of paperwork and emails and things. There's a lot of extra stuff. And teaching more classes is also more labor intensive. And so I just found that I've been working eight to 12 hours every day on a regular basis. And doing the depression session means, you know, another raft of hours on the weekends that I devote to doing this project. And these are all things I love. These are all things that I want to be doing. I love my students. I love teaching. I love the show. I love doing it, although it's really, really hard a lot of the time. But I'm worn out and stressed out. That's what people say all the time. I'm stressed out. Oh, I'm so stressed out. That's like an American phrase. I think we invented that. But it's true. I feel worn out and stressed out and sort of at a breaking point this week. I had a little couple of meltdowns where I just temper tantrums and meltdowns of like a 40 year old woman. Yay. I'm so glad that the people in my life who love me are okay with me, you know, losing it once in a while and crying. Because I, I've taken on a lot. And I, in addition to everything else, not having my car is still not fixed. I took it to the shop and it's still not working. So Every day is a negotiation for transportation with my mom who's staying with me and fortunately has a car that I can use. And so it's, it's a, feels like everything in my life just keeps breaking. Just dumb things like the back porch light breaking. 
And for some reason, that sort of little stuff is driving me crazy. I just want something in my life to work. I updated software on my computer and then that doesn't work. So it just seems like simple things I can't get a handle on. I can't seem to get caught up. I can't clean my my room in my house. I can't find time or let's be honest, energy. Of course, there's 24 hours in the day, but I can't find the extra energy to do some basic things. Nonetheless, just do something fun. So this week I'm feeling stressed, a little anxious, a little bit grumpy, and just at the point of frazzle and, and, and not, not okay, really. I don't feel very okay this week. And so I've been reaching out with friends and family and just telling them I'm, I'm not doing very well. <laughs> I'm doing too much and I, there's going to be more after midterm. I've got a couple extra classes I'm taking on and I don't know if I'm ready for it. I don't know if I can do it. I'm sure I can. It's crazy. I think of how I got through graduate school on three hours a night. Three hours sleep a night and many, many, many hours of work. I know I'm capable of working like mad, but I just don't, I don't want to, and it doesn't seem healthy. And so there's this two-sided coin for being busy. On the one hand, if I'm busy, I don't have time to be depressed. I don't have time to not get out of bed. On the other side, I feel stretched thin and just down and not capable of very much. Being busy means being stressed and being stressed is like being depressed. And I'm trying to find a little space in every day to do something that's just nice. I've been putting together puzzles with my mom in the evenings, and it's just nice. It's something I can do. And in the end, it's something I can accomplish that isn't broken. It's something I can fix, something simple that I can fix. And that makes me happy. And taking walks. Took a walk, just a 20-minute walk today along the river. And that made it all feel very manageable. So... This week, I'm down, I'm stressed, and I feel like a mess. But I know that the people around me love me. I feel like a whiny baby saying, I'm having such a hard time. I mean, it's really first world problems, like, my car doesn't work. But it's also the American culture to be stressed all the time. And I guess I'm feeding right into it and letting stress wreck my day instead of getting some sort of perspective. So my goal this week is to step back, smile, and get a little perspective on the whole thing. I hope it works. So I'd like to go through our announcements for today. 
Five Points Market, located on 756 Southstone Ave, serves breakfast and lunch made from scratch and is open daily from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Incorporating locally sourced products, the menu includes Tucson Weekly's Best of 2015 Third Place Huevos Rancheros. Expertly crafted espresso beverages are made using Cafe Aki coffee. Vegetables from Tucson's farming community are available in the market, and you can visit their website at www.fivepointstucson.com. Support for Downtown Radio is provided by La Cocina Restaurant and Cantina, located at Old Town Artisans. La Cocina features globally inspired alfresco dining, eclectic wines, local beers, and creative cocktails, with live music as well as indoor and outdoor seating in a botanical courtyard. La Cocina is a venue for any occasion, located at 201 West Court Ave, next to the Tucson Museum of Art. More information is at lacocinatucson.com. So today we have with us in the studio, Eli who's an artist, musician, and educator, and youth programming at MOCA. So I'd like to welcome Eli to the studio. Hi, Eli. Welcome to the Depression Session. So Eli, what's, what's new with you? What's going on in your life these days? Anything you want to share? I'm super busy, which is great, teaching at the U in Pima and starting up a new season of programming at MOCA for the youth. I'm also in a band that's not working, not doing too much right now. We're kind of, we go in and out back and forth called Pink Eyes. Another band I was in just released an album, 8-Inch Betsy. Go, and I'm, I'm about to adopt a kid, which is really awesome. That's huge. Um, yeah, it is really, really huge. So, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on. You have a passel at home, right? Mm-hmm. Kids. I do, five right now. <laughs> five and one away. One of the School. things you were saying earlier was just about... Having having a family, having kids takes you out of your depression in some ways. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. I think kids are somewhat new to me. About five or six years ago, my partner has kids and i connecting with them. One of the things that it did that I thought was really cool was it allowed me to be a kid again. And that's a part of myself that I had really shut off. I'd really just said, that's over. You don't have access to that anymore. That's not relevant, all these things. But what I realized is like how much healing can be done when you allow that part of yourself to come back out. Like it's safe. Because there are times when I do feel that part of me very present. And I'm like, I like that part. Whereas I think when it's shut off, I, I'm like, I don't really like that. I don't want to think about it. I don't really want to. I don't have time to play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I mean, I think like with the depression aspect, just you are focused on this little person and it helps you to, you don't have the uh, same luxury of self-indulging, which is something that I did a lot in my depression. I didn't realize I was doing it when I was doing it, but I did, you know, I would lay in bed all day. I would put on sad music and just not talk to anyone. And I don't have that luxury now. And in a way, it's good for me, I think, (laughs) to just have to play. Awesome. Eli, tell me the story of your depression. Okay. Well, the best way that I know how to start is just to start with where I'm from and who I am. So I grew up in Connecticut, kind of on the coast. I was born in Bridgeport, sort of an industrial town, but my town was Stratford a little bit further north of that. And it was kind of suburban and it was fine. It was cool. I would live there again if I had to do it over. I would say that my childhood was good. My family was good, but I was sad as a kid. I was lonely 
I would say. And I had a lot of anxiety. I would go to school and it was sort of the thing where you have friends outside of school. And then when you get to school, they're not like the friends that they were outside. I was a tomboy, so I didn't quite fit in. So that kind of placed me on this in this outside space, I think. And I kind of stayed in that space to the point where I preferred that space. I spent a lot of time in nature. I lived next to a pond for a long time and spent a lot of time just catching frogs, fishing. I love nature and I always, it's like my best friend in a lot of ways. And it's the place where I don't feel judged or feel, it's like you could feel sad and that's okay too. So saying that, I spent a lot of time alone. I'm really good at isolating when I when I want to. But growing up, you know, I always felt obviously like something's wrong. I'm different and all that. And I was. And my family, it wasn't necessarily, being a tomboy, it wasn't necessarily something that was okay, but it also wasn't like super bad or anything. Like my dad always sort of defended me and Never made me feel like bad about it, but I'd say some of my other family members maybe was it was a point of it was a poke fun at kind of a thing. Um, so I just felt kind of a little bad about that. But when I hit puberty, my parents got divorced and my father moved out, and that was difficult because we were really close, and he did feel like the person that sort of was safe. However, I completely understand that the decision and need to do what the choice he made, it just also coincided with puberty, which I started to go to middle school and it was really bad. I was really depressed. I think a lot of preteens and teens are in general figuring out the world and who they're going to be in it and how it works and having lots of realizations and like a loss of innocence and all these things. But for me, I just could not cope. I was just really screwed up. I smoked lots of pot and drank and just to try to deal with all the stuff. I had a couple groups of friends, the like ones that did drugs and the ones that didn't. And I would kind of go back and forth. But it got to a point in high school where I just like, like couldn't function anymore. And I couldn't, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to deal with how I felt and how bad I felt and how awkward and weird I felt. And so I was suicidal and did attempt to commit suicide and spent a few different times in the hospital. So I missed a lot of my, I would say, junior year, some of my senior year of high school. I spent time in like the city hospital in Bridgeport and I did a private hospital in a little upstate kind of away from all my friends and family for a longer period of time. And it was during that time, I would say, that where I was removed from this sort of bubble. And I do believe like Connecticut or maybe the Northeast, there's sort of a bubble of the way things are, the world works. And I didn't fit in the bubble. And I didn't fit, couldn't see a way that I was going to be able to do it. It just felt like there's no way I can, I don't know how to live this life. But when I got out of the bubble and I was in this hospital space with other people like me, it was a sort of, it was mental illness and drug combined, like a unit that was both for both adults and adolescents. It's when I actually, it was, there was enough quiet time for me to think about where I'm from. I was far enough away that I could think 
okay, I'm not in my hallway at my school and I'm not in my house. Um, I'm in this new space and with these new people that also feel the way that I do. And what does that mean? It's where I came to terms with the fact that at the time I identified as gay, which was really, really hard for me. And it was obvious my whole life to everyone and probably myself somewhere. Although I didn't really know what gay was when I was a kid. It wasn't like people talked about it. It wasn't in the media and stuff as it is now. So my decision was like, all right, I could either tell everyone or and fear losing them or I could stay in this space. And so I decided to come out, which was just like a weight lifted. You know, you figure out who's going to be there and who isn't. Some people weren't there and some people stayed and you get to know who those people are. Common story, I think. But one of the other things that also helped me was when I was suicidal, I at a certain point moved in with my father. He would come and see me in the hospital and he came every night after work because it was just me and him living together. After work, he'd come and hang out with me till visiting hours were over till like eight o'clock. And we would just talk about like dumb stuff. It was, it was great. And one night he came and I could tell he was like getting tired of this, you know. And he said to me like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but if you're going to, if you just choose to commit suicide, I'm going to be very sad, but I'm going to have to move on with my life and I'm going to keep living. And I will always have that loss, you know, but I have to, it's taking, this is taking its toll on me. I'm feeling depressed myself. And so I realized what this was doing to my family, to my dad, especially I made the decision at that point, like, this is not an option for you. This is no longer an option. This saying you're going to commit suicide or trying to commit suicide, it's just not, doesn't work. So we have to figure out a different way to manage this. And so these two sort of two events together helped me push me forward a little further into adulthood where I sort of came out of that part of it. Although I've felt that way in my life since. I mean, I've definitely had moments where I'm like, Okay. I mean, I wouldn't do it. You know, it's not something I'm going to, I would ever do, but it sort of circles in your mind like, uh, this, this option is there, but it's not really an option. And I would say for the next 10 years, my, my life was a series of forcing myself to do things that I was afraid to do to figure out what, who's stopping me. Is it me or is it that I can't really do this? And over time, after trying and doing and having enough successes and building my confidence, I realized, oh, okay, I'm actually a valid, valued person and I have value in the world and I have to trust that. I would say trusting my intuition is like a huge problem for me. And, and it, my life's kind of a series of tests of doing that and seeing what happens. And as I do it more and more, the more I realize it's the right thing to do. And so I went to school, I got my master's degree, I got the merit scholarship to get a free grad education at a really great art school, which was like, to me, like, I just passed a huge test. I, you know, making as an artist, and I always have been, has, failing at that has always loomed. Like, what if I fail? What if I suck at this thing that I love so much? So that was a huge part for me. And then moving back to Tucson a few years ago, everything in Tucson, everything kind of, I don't know, the desert has a way of healing 
of allowing you to be who you are and healing whatever you need to heal. And I've always, it's always been that way for me. And it's why I came here initially in 1996. But when I moved back in 2012 from Chicago, I, all those things started to bubble up again. Like, okay, what's going on? I, I was very emotionally raw for a reason I didn't, I wasn't sure. And I realized that it was a lot of it had to do with like my gender identity and trying to figure that out. And so having gone through that process, which was extremely, it was the scariest thing I've ever gone through. Not, I don't know if it was the hardest, but it was the scariest. I think coming out the other side, I realized that a lot of the depression that I feel in my life is a result of me denying the truth, either either my intuition or who I am. It's living for things outside of myself instead of for me. And that's when I get stuck in those spaces. And I realize it's different for everybody. I certainly don't speak for anyone else because I know we all have our different reasons or things that trigger us. But for me, anxiety is a direct result of me denying something that's true, like trying to convince myself that something is other than it is. And and then that just rolls into depression and fear and, you know, all that stuff. I don't know. I, I think that it, over my life, it has been something that has proven to me that it's always going to come back. Don't get too, <laughs> too comfortable, but also know that you're going to make it through the other side. There is, there will be another side. It's a process. And I think what helps me during those times really is to find something I can empathize with, like put in the saddest movie for me is my life as a dog, my favorite film. And just like feel the feels and then try to roll out through the other end. You know what I mean? Thank you. Sure. One of the things that really struck me was the, the, the desert and how it heals because I feel that way too. When I came here, I felt like, like the desert is poetry Everything mm-hmm. winnowed down to its basics. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And exposed. Mm-hmm. Everything's exposed and just brought down to its basics. That's the way the desert functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when I came here in 1996, that's what I needed. I needed to strip away everything to figure out who I really was. And once I did that, I was able to leave and I went to Chicago. And I knew when I was in Chicago, like there was part of me that knew I'm going to be back because there's more to this story that I haven't gotten to yet. And this, I have to go through this to get to that. And that's where I'm at right now. I mean, I'm here. I've just made it through a major thing in my life, which I'm, it's still, it's always a process. It's still happening, but you know, I don't know what's next. I feel good though, for the most part, you know, I mean, I have my days, but I feel good. And that, that's part of the message of what, like what you're saying today is, is you can get to the worst, which is maybe I don't want to be here at all. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't come from it comes from a place of like this isn't worth it, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Or what's it all? What's the point? What's the point of yeah. it? Yeah, and get from that to a place where you're like, I feel good. Mm-hmm. My life looks like something I could live. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and you can not just live, but for me, it's like gratitude. And and as much as I res- I might resent it at times, I have that much gratitude in the moments when I can actually see it for what it is and like, okay, this has a lot of value. The people in my life have value. What For whatever the reason we're all here for is, we will not know and we won't be able to tell each other when we find out. So <laughs> we just have to have that kind of trust, which is 
for me, again, my biggest, one of my biggest things is trusting that. So, but I'm doing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> and then another thing I picked up on was like this pairing of anxiety and depression and how they're, they're almost like cousins. I don't know what they mm -hmm. are. And for you, it sounds like that was like a really strong thread through it all. Mm -hmm. And you have like, I don't know, advice or coping or, you know, what do you do? Ooh, anxiety is so hard because it feels so uncontrollable when it's happening. Those panic moments. The only thing I tell myself is, and I, someone else told me this, and it's just to picture it like clouds in the sky and they're rolling by and you're just watching them and they're going to pass. I realize that I have to be in the moment. I can't, if the more I avoid it, the more I fight it, the stronger it is. But that's the best I could do is feel the things and try to also, for me, experience something that makes me, that moves me in some way, whether I'm sad, whether it's sad or happy. I think that's why I make art to move, to sort of move the things around and, and shake them out of whatever thing they're stuck in. Well, Eli, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for your story. And thank all of you for listening to The Depression Session. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septahelix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.